I, I, I regret really the title, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. That sounds like something from one of our tabloids, as if I'm a dirt digger on, uh, on, on William Booth, but I'm really not. But uh, we'll see what we can make of this afternoon. Twelve weeks before he died, he said, While women weep as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight to the very end. In 1884, in The War Cry, he wrote this, Let the business of the world take care of itself. My business is to get the world saved. When William Booth became a Christian at 11 o'clock in 1844, one evening, he committed his life not just to Christ, but he said he wanted to be a soul winner. And we saw in our first lecture, no sooner had he got converted, where he's taking a chair, going around the streets of Nottingham with his friend William Sanson, sharing the gospel. And even when his friend died, he still carried on. He kept a little journal, and in the journal he wrote, God shall have all there is of William Booth. And I don't think he would ever have guessed that he would have finished up general of the Salvation Army. By the way, before he met the king, King Edward VII, whenever the press referred to William Booth, it was, quote, general, unquote, Booth. But after he'd met the king, those quotation marks were removed. It was always General Booth. As if, well, if the king acknowledges him, then he must be a general. However, the public persona of what he became and also what was going on behind the scenes is sometimes quite hard to take. You see, Christian work can greatly alter us, sometimes for the good and, and sometimes for the worse. And there's no doubting the fact that William Booth over the years changed. And the man he finished up being is not the man that he started out. And uh, in no way am I trying to humiliate him. In no way am I trying to discredit him. I'm just trying to give you the basic facts that we may learn from them ourselves. What are they? Well, first of all, William Booth, the man. There are certain people in life you feel very sorry for. You look at them and say, wow, you've, you've had a hard time. You know how some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth? I also feel that some people are born with a Brillo pad in their mouth. You know, life is tough and life is grim and life is hard. My heart goes out to this boy who loses his father at 12. I lost my father when I was 35. Boy, what a blow that was in my life. But to lose your father at 12, and then you can see your mother really struggling to, to make ends meet, so you're sent out to work at 14. Come on, let's face it, a pawnbroker's assistant working every hour that you can just to get a little bit of money. What a terrible kind of job that was. Then to be psyched because you become a Christian and you're holding some Christian principles. Then to be reinstated. And then having sort of got converted, you're going around trying to evangelize, tell other people, and all you get is negativity from inside the church. Very little encouragement. Then you move down to London can't find another job, so you carry on being a pawnbroker. You then join the church, and then you're almost put out of the church because you're trying to reach the lost. You kind of look at that man think, you know, why did he not just call it a day? To say, well, if this is Christianity, 
I really want to call it a day and forget it, and I just carry on and pursue my own career. He had uh, a pretty tough time of it. And so at that level, my, my heart really goes out to him. John Newton spoke of one lady in his congregation, and he said, her ha- ambition rose no higher than making butter six days a week. And he said it in quite a, a derogatory way. But, you know, I'm glad there are people in life whose ambition rises no higher than making butter six days a week. That's if you like butter. And uh, William Booth was totally different from that. He wasn't a contented man. He didn't want to make butter for six days of the week. No, he wanted to do something positive that was going to affect people's lives. And, and he was incredibly restless. And restless people can either be very inventive or a nuisance. And I would say he was both. I don't know if I would have really got on with William Booth And I don't think he would certainly have got on with me. He was incredibly inventive, but he was he was a bit of a nuisance. And you know, he was quirky. See, what do you mean by quirky? Well, how about some of this stuff? He always had to have his breakfast before eight o'clock. If eight o'clock came without any breakfast, forget it. He finished up just virtually living on rice pudding. He had rice pudding every day. And on high days and holy days, they had currants in the rice pudding. (laughs) He took a cold bath every morning before he had breakfast. But on the Lord's Day, it had to be warm. (laughs) What the difference was, I really don't know. But there we are. Now I know why I'm not a salvationist. And, And the family had a pet dog. And uh, when the children were out one day, the dog died. And he knew, he, he knew they loved the dog. So he took the dog to the local taxidermist. And when the children came home from school, he said, uh, I'm really sorry that the dog has died, but, but don't worry, we'll, we'll see what happens. Several weeks later, the dog came back as a fireside rug. <laughs> so the children kind of came into the, the parlor... There's Fido. <laughs> the children screamed, and so he, he had to get rid of the, the, the fireside rug. So you can see he was kind of interesting man with a few quirky twists. twists. He didn't have a sense of humor. I don't know how he would get on at the few conference. Uh, he did not have a sense of humor. Neither did his wife. And I'm told that having a sense of humor is, is a sign of having a balanced outlook on life, especially if you can laugh at yourself. He did generally not find things funny. So really the pair of them were a pair well met. And uh, it was said the same too of, of Thomas Carlyle and his wife Jane. No, sorry, I apologize. I just slandered the man. Uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning. Instead of them, they never had a sense of humor and they were quite miserable. And one man said, thank God they both married each other, otherwise it would have made two other people unhappy. <laughs> They were always ill. Yeah. I would, if you understand the word, they were valetudinarians. I don't know if you receive Christmas letters where really it's a, a list of people's illnesses and you get to the end of it and you book an appointment with your own doctor thinking, <laughs> we've had our fair share of those over the years. If you read the letters that they wrote to each other and that she was always writing to her, there was always a medical up, up, update. She was iller than him, 
but he succumbed a lot quicker. And uh, the word man flu comes to mind. So he was always kind of crashing, and I've got to have a few weeks off. I just can't take any more because I feel very unwell. Throughout his entire life, William Booth managed to dodge every theological issue. Uh, I'm not calling him a heretic. That's the last thing I'm saying. I'm just saying he was uh, theologically weak. I have read five biographies of William Booth. I selected them from the whole gamut of people assessing the life of William Booth. And I have to say very carefully, I still really don't know what he believed. And it was more instinct rather than, uh, than intellect. He had no time for scholarship. And, and he certainly wasn't a reader. I remember a man telling me, he said, a man came to our brethren assembly and uh, he had a Bible in his hand and uh, he told the congregation, he said, this is the only book I read. I don't read any of the books. And some wag on the back row said, brother, we weren't that, we weren't that out a long time ago. <laughs> and, and William Booth was just a little bit like that. He did read, but not much. But he wasn't, he wasn't a great reader and he was no fan of, of deep theology. Three people deeply influenced his life, and uh, they were all Americans. The first was a man called James Corgi. James Corgi was an American Methodist who came over to this country to, to run missions. He was a, a, a raconteur. He was a, a charismatic personality. And obviously Booth was drawn to him. And he would come and hold missions. Uh, and Booth was, was deeply impressed, thinking, well, if he can do that, then, then I can do that. James Corgi had been greatly impressed by American camp meetings, and he was trying to resurrect that kind of thing in this country. And he was such a nuisance to the Methodist Church that the president of the Methodist Conference wrote to the president of the American Methodist Conference saying, could you please call this man home? We don't want any more of him. Uh, and so he was, he was recalled back to America. He did come on another occasion. And when he came on that second occasion, William Booth and Catherine introduced themselves to him and said, we love your preaching. In fact, we've just had a son, and uh, he's called Ballington. What's your son called, Mrs. Booth? Ballington. Ballington Booth. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, as, as a Baptist who believes in baptism by, by immersion, this really sticks in my throat. But... But he baptized the child. He sprinkled it, really. Uh, he wasn't into, into believers' baptism, as we understand it. So here's this big American revivalist sort of baptizing Babington Booth. The Booths were made up. The second person who greatly influenced the Booths was a lady called Phoebe Palmer. She and her husband came to this country holding missions and, and preaching the gospel and also talking about holiness. She was a great fan of John Wesley's doctrine of, of Christian holiness, stroke perfection, and she began to preach that. And, and they loved her. And if James Corgi inspired William Booth, then Phoebe Palmer really inspired uh, Catherine Booth. And, and it's uh, that great quotation of William Booth, uh, who, who you can almost attribute to Mrs. Thatcher too, really, you know, my best men are women. Uh, and, and he admitted that the best, the best men in the army, generally speaking, were women. And so he soon bought in to her kind of philosophy of female preachers. And thirdly, who influenced them? A man called Charles Finney. They were sold on Finney. 
Catherine, she was the reader, so she would read and then inform Charles what she'd just read. Uh, uh, William, sorry, what she'd just read. She, she read Finney's lectures on revival and said, William, this is it. With the right conditions and, and the right kind of spiritual input, we can see things happen in our country. Look, we have it here in the book form. And she explained. Furthermore, uh, Charles Finney was totally against election stroke predestination. I pointed out last week that the, uh, the booths, you know, even the very mention of the word Calvinism, you had to bring out the smelling salts. So the fact that he was against what they were against really married them together. And these three Americans greatly, greatly influenced them. What I do know is this. He believed in a personal devil. He believed that there was a ter- in an eternal hell. And he believed that the only one to save us from the evil one and from the lost eternity was the Lord Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. He believed that, and, and he believed that quite passionately. He also began to teach later on in life that believers need a second touch of the Holy Spirit to bring them into full sanctification. And it's interesting, in the last probably 15 years, that hymn, O God of burning, cleansing flame, send the fire, send the fire. That is a hymn that is written to endorse that kind of teaching. Just as when you read Charles Wesley, you see people, you know, singing Wesley, not as much these days as they used to, but, you know, take away the love of sinning, Alpha and Omega B, you know, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless. What people don't realize is that, that Charles Wesley is writing out his brother's theology of, of, of Christian holiness down here. And we're praying, God, bring us into that experience where we can live a life without sin and please you. I admire their 100% devotion to be totally committed to Christ. And so William Booth certainly believed that, and, and he began to preach it. He also preached that God not only sanctifies the individual, but also he sanctifies groups of people, i.e. the Salvation Army. I quote, The Salvation Army is the creation of the Holy Spirit. End of quote. Quite an interesting thing to say. Where did he stand eschatologically? He was post-millennial. So William Booth was post-millennial, which is quite interesting for the day and age in which he lived, when, when pre-millennialism was, was pretty hot uh, and very strong. He had some very interesting views about the coming millennium. How was the millennium going to be brought in? By the Salvation Army. Quote, and what might the new Jerusalem look like? Here is his answer in the millennium or the ultimate triumph of Salvation Army principles. So what is the millennium? It's the ultimate triumph of Salvation Army principles. Here is his answer. First, in the millennium, we should have Hyde Park roofed in with towers climbing towards the stars as the world's great grand central temple. Really? So keep your eyes on Hyde Park Corner. <laughs> That's where the millennium's going to start. After his wife Catherine died, and he, in spite of all our kind of joking and things, he deeply loved his wife. After she died, he was deeply devastated and, and really, really missed her. And, and when he kind of found his feet again, he, he thought it would be good to go on tours around this country, motor car tours, and if you see those pictures over there, you'll see them on one of those uh, tours. Open top, 
You know those kind of cars chugging away? Yeah. One tour lasted 29 days, covering 1,224 miles in one of those. Yeah. And, and on one tour, this is just an example, on one tour he preached at 164 meetings, 74 were indoors. He said he thought it would be good if the wider Salvation Army family could see my face. So that's why he went round on these tours and also seeking to, to preach the gospel. I have to say that John chapter 3 verse 30 seemed to have been lost on him, which is he must increase, I must decrease. Remember Hudson Taylor, I am the humble servant of an illustrious master. But uh, he seemed to have lost that the older he got. And he began to write his own press reports and then believe what he'd written. So that in the end, he was almost like a celebrity. For example, he loved to be photographed with famous people. And if you go through the archives of the Salvation Army, I mean, how on earth he got to rub shoulders with these people is absolutely amazing. He's photographed with Cecil Rhodes, who he called a personal friend. President McKinley, William Gladstone, Lord Rothschild, Lloyd George. Once he was talking to Lloyd George and Winston Churchill walked back. Wow, he was absolutely delighted he'd seen Churchill. He said he was friends with Asquith and A.J. Balfour. And in America, he met uh, Theodore Roosevelt, and he was given the freedom of Philadelphia. How on earth did, did this young boy from Nottingham finish up rubbing shoulders with all those people? And it seems that everybody wanted to be seen photographed with, with William Booth. Believe it or not, a man who really didn't like reading was given an honorary doctorate by Oxford University. So he was a doctor of civil law. Which is interesting, because half of the Salvation Army found themselves behind bars. But anyway, there we are. And when he died, President Taft and the Mayor of London and many monarchs all around the world uh, sent their condolence. And how about this for tongue-in-cheek? Having spent his entire life knocking the Church of England, saying that you know this church is a hindrance to evangelizing, when he died, the leaders of the Salvation Army wrote to Westminster Abbey, to ask if he could be buried there. They sent a letter back. I'm just kind of, I'm putting it in your understanding, okay, with just two words, off, push, rearrange. <laughs> so they said, there's no way we're putting him in Westminster Abbey. You I mean, he, he was against the church. What are you talking about? But it's the kind of, the status he had by the time he died. And so where was he buried? Well, he was buried in Abney Park Cemetery. And if you've ever got a spare hour in London, you must go to Abney Park Cemetery in Stoke Newington. It is stacked out with pioneers of, of the nonconformist church. The whole Booth family is there. Josiah Condor, who wrote, Thou art the everlasting word, the Father's only son, he's there. Walter Medhurst, who was a massive, massive influence on Hudson Taylor. Uh, Hudson Taylor's parents are there. Walter Martin, one of the pastors of, of Westminster Chapel. You mean... Oh, Betsy Cadwallader, famous in Wales with the NHS. It's full of interesting kind of pioneers. He was put there. Today it's just riddled with rats. It's uh, very overgrown. But when he went there, it was a massive, massive funeral. Money became a big issue in his life. You can understand why. You mean, when you are setting up an organization, you're involved in organizations yourself. I mean, money does not grow on trees. The bigger the organization became, the more money was needed. 
And no person in the Victorian era spoke more about money than William Booth. And a man called Charles Bradlaugh, have you heard of Charles Bradlaugh? He's buried in Brookwood. Charles Bradlaugh had no time for, for William Booth. And he constantly kept writing in the paper, we want to see this man's accounts. And when Charles Bradlaugh died, would you like to know his dying words on his deathbed? Imagine slipping into eternity with this sentence on your lips. We must see the Booth's accounts. <laughs> Can you imagine? You, you slid there. We must see the Booth's accounts. <laughs> Maybe the Lord said, it's all right, Charles. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway... He, he, he wasn't very open with money, and he was always speaking about money. And uh, what is interesting is this. When he went to Sweden, he then began to go on some kind of what we may call mini-world tours to show his face to the wider Salvation Army family. When he went to Sweden, you had to pay to see him. And uh, the idea was, he said, he said, you have to buy a ticket to come to the arena where I'm going to speak. And he said, I won't take anything from it, but the money is to support the Salvation Army cause. Which is quite interesting, is it, from a boy who would stand on a chair in Nottingham and preach freely, you know, and then at the end you're having to pay the seat to see the man. That's very, very interesting. He, he once met Lord Rothschild. And how about this? He, he, he met Lord Rothschild and uh, he said, uh, General... I'd like to give you a thousand pounds. When, when can I give it? William Booth said, now. <laughs> okay, that's the kind of man he was. The Marquis of Queensbury was uh, a well-known agnostic. And uh, he, he gave William Booth a very handsome check. When people got to hear about it, hang on a minute, this man's an agnostic. Why are you receiving money from agnostics? Is this what we're about? His answer is interesting. We will wash the money in the tears of the widows and the orphans and lay on the altar of humanity. Meaning I don't mind it. come from anybody. We just put it on the altar. Lord, cleanse it. Now use it. The biggest gambler in London at that time was a man called George Herring. He died in 1906. He... He was the big name. You know, these days there are big names behind gambling that we sometimes see on television. Uh, he was the mastermind behind all the gambling in London at that time. And uh, throughout his life, he gave £40,000 to the cause of the Salvation Army, primarily for this farm he started up in Hadley in Essex to try and uh, you know, teach people a trade and, and to, to re-educate them. And it caused massive problems because people were saying, hang on a minute, this man's a gambler. Gambling is wrecking people's lives in, in the East End of London. It's driving them to drink. So the man who is destroying people's lives to appease his conscience gives £40,000 to the army and you take it. And, you know, real kind of real issues. Just imagine a non-Christian in your congregation won the lottery of a million pounds and said, you know, I, this church has been really good to me, you know, here's a hundred thousand pound. What would you do? You don't want it, do you send it to Santa? Okay. <laughs> 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 yes, William. 
There we are. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> By the way, Satra is spelled S-A-S-R-A. Okay, put it on the chat. Okay, so that's the kind of man, and these are moral dilemmas that he faced, but he seemed to succumb to, to accepting money from, from anybody. What about his marriage? William Booth and his marriage. Well, they were an item, a very interesting item. I, I've told you one or two things about them, how they were always ill and that, that she read and, and he didn't. William, throughout his entire life, never really appealed to the intellectual in his preaching. She did, but he didn't. He appealed to the higher up in society because of his personality and what he'd done, but throughout his preaching, no, he, he never did. I told you yesterday that when you read their letters when they were courting, all that they were were kind of matter-of-fact don't eat mustard, don't eat meat, improve your spelling, things like that. There was kind of very little romance, and yet, amazingly, they had eight children. She was a very, very strong-minded uh, woman. I, I'm slightly reluctant to call her a feminist, because you know, it depends where you're looking from. You know, just because someone is strong-minded, you don't mean there's a feminist. But kind of putting her in her day and age then, you know, you almost see like an Emmeline Panker speaking up for women's rights, saying we mustn't be put down. And a lot of what she said about women, I have to say, she was absolutely right. And so she was a pioneer of, of women's causes. She was a very gifted speaker. She could pull a bigger crowd than William. And people loved to hear her speak. So if you saw her name on a bulletin, you would get a great crowd of people. But she was very scathing about the state church and also about nonconformity. She felt they'd been severely let down by all the various branches of Methodism. So you can understand there was lots of kind of barb comments uh, uh, about the established church uh, and even the nonconformist church. You have to understand too, the nonconformist church in those days was totally different from what it is today. And you only have to look at sort of congregational churches, which are very similar to Anglican churches in architecture, and some of the well-known people in Methodism and Congregationalism were, were the movers and shakers in the nation. I mean, there's no doubting that at all. She was a woman who was preoccupied with her health. And she was a big fan of alternative medicine. Now, when I spoke on the Christian Brethren, I mentioned a man called Dr. Kidd. Dr. Kidd was physician to William Gladstone and also Benjamin Disraeli. In fact, Disraeli died holding the hand of Dr. Kidd, this Plymouth Brethren doctor who was a big supporter of homeopathy uh, and alternative medicine. When Catherine's mother was dying, they employed Dr. <coughs> Dr. Kidd to, to look after her needs. And when Catherine Booth was dying, think of it, the physician who deals with the Prime Minister, they employed him to look after Catherine. Why? Because she showed the symptoms of breast cancer, which is what her mother had died of. And when all the symptoms came, she tried to pretend they weren't there and tried to ignore them. But in the end, she became so ill that she did go to, to see Dr. Kidd and he analysed and he did say to her, this, you've come too late, I can do nothing for you. And so she spent two years dying. And uh, she preached as long as she could. 
And when she was too weak, she was in her bed writing articles, writing letters, encouraging the workers on the field. When the end, how about this? When the end seemed fairly imminent, William hired the London Stereoscopic Company to enter their bedroom and take professional photographs of his dying wife. Now, we have to put that in the context of the Victorians love to take photographs of those kind of situations, but I don't think that would go down well these days. As if, you know, here it is, you know, you... You're dealing with someone from the church who, who sadly is slipping into eternity in the sense they're losing their life, and you're saying, have you got your funeral plans worked out? You know, Do you know what hymns you want? And by the way, do you know what photographic company you want? And so here is William Booth with his wife and one of the two of the children, you know, seeing mother and wife slip into eternity, and there's a crew with the cameras taking photographs. Why? The wider family may like to see how my wife entered into eternity. How interesting. When she died, 40,000 people came to see her lying in state. William put a glass lid on the coffin so everyone could look at her. And 36,000 people attended her funeral in the Olympia Hall in London. To show you how powerful that is, when P.T. Barnum went there just before that with his circus... He attracted a crowd of 12,000 people. So 12,000 to see P.T. Barnum, 36,000 to see Catherine Booth. And uh, when, when she was buried in, in Abney Park Cemetery, of course, she was the first one there. 3,000 Salvation Army officers led the parade. And there were 19,000 round the gravesite. 19,000. That, that's more... Than, than your average championship football team gets on a Saturday afternoon. So that's their kind of marriage, interesting couple. What about William Booth and his methods? What was the attraction of, of William Booth? Why were people drawn to the Salvation Army and also to Catherine Booth and, and her preaching? To be quite frank with you, I just don't know. It was more style than substance, and, and it's very difficult when you read through hundreds and hundreds of pages of, of information about William Booth, there is, there's very little to find about what he actually preached. Whenever he stood up to speak, you knew you were there for one or two hours. He generally spoke without notes, and, and, and he just kind of spoke out of his heart. A lot of it was just speaking about the work, speaking about the need in London, and trying to reach out to people, just to connect with them. And also, he always tried to speak about Jesus. Very simply, but you know, you need Jesus in your life. He died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. You need to commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. But very quickly, his meetings turned into to circuses. And... Uh, it's, it's no exaggeration to say the educated people of the day looked upon him as a bit of a, a buffoon. And uh, not very many educated people went to his meetings when they did. Oh, there's no way I'm going to that. And you can imagine, and I'm not being critical or rude, I'm just giving you the facts. You know, here's a man who isn't well educated. He's uh, quite dirty. You know, hasn't got much going for him. He becomes a Christian. He's still ill-educated. 
He's still dirty, trying to clean himself up. Hasn't got much going for him. He stands up to give his testimony. You can imagine how rough and rugged it would be. But horses for courses. You know, he would appeal to a certain class of person, but the educated are not listening to that kind of stuff. And so you can understand how they generated great interest in the lower end of society, but as you start to go up in society, their influence was very, very minimal indeed. He loved gimmicks. William Booth was a great gimmick maker. He, uh, he once went to a public execution and uh, he ordered his officers to take along a coffin. Not for the person who had just been hanged, but when the hanging was over, he then had his officers place the coffin on their shoulders and they then marched through the crowd and a crowd will follow a crowd and he led them into a Salvation Army Hall and then preached the gospel. <laughs> Okay, you got your ideas. <laughs> Try pulling that out of your box. He, uh, one, one Salvation Army officer took upon himself to dress up as John the Baptist and used to walk around the town, you know, just dressed as John the Baptist, well, with his kind of attire as recorded in Scripture, telling people to get right with the Lord. On one occasion, William Booth said to a group of Salvation Army girls, Put your night dresses over your uniforms and parade the streets of London. Come on, William. Yeah, it got a crowd. Uh, and then, 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 you know, nighty or no nighty, they then began to preach the gospel. There was a man in Leicester who was part of the Salvation Army, and uh, he, he used to stand outside the station giving out tickets. And uh, on the ticket it said, the Hallelujah Railway from Leicester to heaven. So as people were going into the station, he would say, you know, hallelujah, would you like to go to heaven? And then, what do you mean? Well, you can go to heaven. And so it was kind of an evangelistic tool. How interesting indeed. They, they loved to have very provocative banners that you know, would really get people's attention. Things like, the devil is a liar. You know, and march through the town with these kind of banners that would certainly get people's attention. As can be imagined, these kind of meetings created a great deal of hysteria and also lots of manipulation. And I'm not all that sure that 21st century versions of these do much to move my soul. Uh, but there again, there are people who, who dove, do love a circus. The question is this. Was the Salvation Army a Bible movement? And I say it carefully, I don't think it was. Was William Booth a Bible preacher? I don't think he was. Were their services Bible-based? I really don't think they were. Would we have put up with the services of Mr. and Mrs. Booth? I really doubt it. But, in spite of all that, you cannot doubt the fact they were reaching people that if we'd been living then, I don't think we would have reached. God was using them. What about the movement then, William Booth and the movement? The salvation grew at an incredible rate. I don't think William Booth anticipated how fast it would grow. And, and once they took off, the momentum really got going. They were almost opening a new center every week. Hence the reason why we need more money. Because if you are saving people from the bottom end of life 
who are virtually living from hand to mouth or have very menial jobs, they haven't got much spare cash. Hence the reason why when Lloyd Rothschild offered a thousand pounds, he almost took his hand off thinking, wow, this is a real wonderful gift. Otherwise, it's just pennies and tuppences. And uh, every week at the pinnacle of the Salvation Army, they were sending out from their headquarters 5,400 letters a week. Bramwell Booth said, we had to build the ship while we were at sea and master the laws of navigation at the same time. A modern expression of that is that you're flying with a seat of your trousers, thinking, wow, what do we do now? We've never been here before. The bigger the army became, the more of a control freak he became. I'm allowed to use that word, but I understand why. And it was a common statement in the Salvation Army, you can't make a cup of tea around this place without a word from the headquarters. I mentioned yesterday William Booth's right-hand man, George Scott Railton, who was a good man, an educated man, and he brought lots of stability. And you think, where would they have been without him? On many an occasion, he took William Booth on one side and said, William, all that we're doing is basically getting involved in meals and in music. We are losing the gospel. Sadly, William Booth really didn't take that on board. And how interesting that, you know, maybe 25 years after they started, here's a man right at the top saying, it's meals and music that are now taking over the Salvation Army. Where is the preaching of, of the gospel? And is it not true to say, I am not here in any way throwing stones because it's easy to slip into this, that basically when we mention the Salvation Army today, we think of meals and we think of music. Now listen, in the words of Dale Moody, better the evangelism I do than the evangelism you don't do. And I thank God for every down and out they reach and every drug addict and every homeless person that they reach because they're reaching people that we're not reaching. But if only William Booth had said, you know, George, I think you've got a point. Let's address the balance. When you think of every major denomination, you think of well-known people, you know, well-known Bible teachers, well-known expounders. If I said to you, you give me the names of ten well-known Salvation Army writers who write commentaries or who wrote commentaries, you know, who had an influence on the theological world, I think you'd be struggling. The only one is a man called Samuel Logan Brengel. And you'll see the photograph of his grave, which uh, I happened to see when I was in New York many, many years ago. Uh, and he was a godly man, uh, and his books are still worth reading. And so I would say that basically, at the heart of it, the Salvation Army was a social stroke economic movement. Was William Booth a dictator? Was he an autocrat? He was, but so are some of us. He didn't believe in committees. Some of us don't believe in committees. He didn't believe in democracy. You know, he was in charge. And uh, the only way of doing church, quote-unquote, was, was his way. Hence the reason why 
as you began to rise through the ranks of the Salvation Army and take up different posts, you were given army books. You were given the regulation for field officers, 626 pages. You were given the regulations for staff officers, 357 pages. So you had your Bible, you had your Salvation Army Doctrine book, and then you had your two regulation books, and then you had your hymn book. Five books. And is it fair to say that probably the Bible was the last book? And the other books went beforehand. In the Brethren, there is an expression to describe an eldership that runs a tight ship. I've heard folks say, oh, I was brought up in a seminar that ran a tight ship. William Booth ran an incredibly tight ship. But you can understand why, not being critical here, you can understand why when it is so big, somebody has got to make the decisions. And as soon as you make a decision, there will be always those who will oppose you. He had many resignations. People who came and went very, very quickly. Basically because army life was brutal. When you joined the army, it was literally like joining the army. You were losing your life. And you were moved around at will of some high commander in the army. So you may just, you know, you go to Rotherham because Yorkshire needs the gospel. So you go to Rotherham and you're placed there. And after four months, oh, by the way, you're now up to Newcastle. So you've got no argument. You've got to go to Newcastle. By the way, after a couple of months, we think you should be down in Folkestone. And so people were being moved all around the country, left, right, and center. And, uh, do you know, the general even introduced court-martials into the Salvation Army. You could be court-martialed. You could be court-martialed for three things. Number one, light and frivolous conduct. Say no more. <laughs> Secondly, if you got engaged without having the rubber stamp from the top. And number three, misbehavior in the presence of the enemy. Gypsy Smith was a member of the Salvation Army. And uh, the free churches were impressed with the work that Gypsy Smith was doing in the area. And so they got together out of kindness and raised money and gave Gypsy Smith a watch just to say, brother, you've made a real difference in this town and the free churches are delighted with what you've done. When news of the gift of a watch to Gypsy Smith went through the ranks, he was dismissed from the Salvation Army because receiving a watch is a sign of corruption. I wonder what would have happened if he'd received it and said to William Booth, why don't you turn this into gold? whether he'd still been allowed to stay in the Salvation Army. But anyway, they were paid a pittance, and, and many of them were on starvation sort of diets. Uh, there are many accounts of people living on, 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 on such a meager diet of food that sometimes when they were preaching, they were collapsing, becoming unconscious because they hadn't got enough food. Uh, there's a certain girl called Mary Castley from Kendall who several times was you know, preaching in front of a crowd of people. Wham, she went down, basically because she was hungry. And uh, one, of the, uh, one, one of the 
early articles that appeared in the war cry. How about this? I like in the war cry. A general's order against starvation. Telling his people, don't starve yourself to death. But, but the idea was, you live on as little as you possibly can and use your money for the spreading of the gospel. And then while all that was going on, someone had the bright idea of a self-denial week. <laughs> well, some had nothing more to, to, to give up. Yet they were struggling big time. This kind of runs contrary to what happened in 1993. I don't know if you remember 1993, when six million pounds went missing from the Salvation Army funds. And three senior people were moved on, and one senior person was sacked. Hmm, that's very interesting. How did the Salvation Army raise money? Well, shaking tins as they went around preaching. Uh, large donations from very well-to-known people. But they also went into to selling things. Now, you may think this is all fantasy, but I'm not making this up. You can believe me or, or not believe me, but that's fine. They, they, they went into selling summer underwear. Sounds slightly mormonic. So there was Salvation Army underwear. They sold Gladstone bags, visiting cards, and how about this? Soap with a picture of the booths embossed on the soap. Remember Pope on a rope? You could buy those soaps with Pope on, yeah? Well, it was booths on a rope, you know? And you could wash your hands and face and pray for William and Catherine Booth while, while you were doing so. They also started selling shares. Uh, in a building society. Uh, and at one occasion, they were doing far better and growing faster than the Prudential. On one occasion, George Scott Railton, you know, the man who said, it's getting all music and meals, General, come on, let's get back to the gospel. He was getting quite tired of all these money-raising efforts. And so at a public meeting at the Exeter Hall, he turned up wearing sackcloth and ashes. <laughs> and uh, in front of a huge crowd of Salvation Army people, he had some Salvation Army document in his hand about you know, buying this and investing in that, and he just ripped it up in public and stamped on it to let people in the army know, I've had enough of these silly gimmicks. We've got to stop it. Soup, shares, soap, and a bit of salvation. At the peak of its existence, the Salvation Army reached about 7% of the London population. 7%. We must not belittle, and I hope I haven't done that, just telling you the facts. We've done a little bit of laughing, but hey, 7%. How many pork are we reaching? I mean, London is just short of 9 million now. I mean, what is 7% of 9 million? Are we coming anywhere near 1%? So they were reaching 7% of, of people in London. But the army, according to the Times newspaper, was already in decline during the days of William Booth, and, and they were. And that 7%, by the way, I mentioned it's people at the bottom of life for whom life has been very cruel and very hard but no big makers and shakers within the city. Many have accused William Booth of starting a cult. Why is that? Well, 
No mention of baptism. And yet the Lord Jesus said, repent and be baptized. No breaking of bread. And they try and explain why they don't do that. I can understand in the early days they started as a mission. Dare I use the word parachurch organization? But they started not to be a church, but as a mission. But when it became apparent they were forming themselves into a church and forming structures, you just thought they would have said, let's have a fresh look at what we believe and what we do. But they didn't. And so even today, the Salvation Army do not uh, do the sacraments, they do not baptize, and they certainly do not break bread. A number of people wrote to the papers and wrote to William Booth to say, you have stolen my child. My child, you know, my teenage daughter, my teenage son, signed up to join the army. You send them to Switzerland, you send them to India, you send them to Australia without any consultation with me, and I'm their father, or we are their parents, and, and all their orders come from you. Is this the way you should be behaving? And isn't that the kind of argument that people use with the cults? You get young people and pump them with this information, that information, and, and separate them from their parents. Uh, and he was always trying to say, oh, no, 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 they do it voluntarily. You can't say anything about the Salvation Army without mentioning their music. Two years after his death, they had 1,674 brass bands holding 26,000 players, 13,000 songsters playing in 56 different countries. I quote William Booth, All the beating and blowing is to get people first into the barracks and then to the penitent form. When the king died, he left it in his will that a Salvation Army band be allowed inside Buckingham Palace to play his favorite hymn. <coughs> Let me start to bring this to a close by talking about their children. They had eight children. And if truth were known, they really didn't bring their children up. They were that busy running missions here and there, sometimes together, but more often separately, that the people who brought their children up were really childminders. And they came and went at a regular rate. Some just could not cope with rice pudding every day and, and, and just the pace of life at which the booths lived. We have plenty of evidence from the letters that the children wrote to their mother and that she wrote to them, which have been preserved, that they had a very hard time. Now, we have to put it in the Victorian context, but we have from the letters that William was very severe on his children. Okay? Now, we're looking at it in 2018 in terms of you know, disciplining your children, what you can do and can't do. He was very keen at laying on the hands. And many a time his children took a severe thrashing. And the letters from the children to the mother, to Catherine, make very sad reading. It was, we don't feel that we're good enough for you. We don't feel that we're pleasing you. We're trying our best to come up to your standard. Very, very sad. And it seems, you know, here they were going around preaching God's love to sinners but it would have helped if it had started in, in Jerusalem with their family and then gone on from there. What about their eight children? Just very quickly, this is very, very interesting. I never realized this. They had eight children. The first was called William, 
Bramwell booth, named after the famous uh, Methodist preacher, William Bramwell, who uh, buried just outside Bradford. William uh, Bramwell Booth, uh, at the age of 16, he was appointed his father's chief of staff. 16. And uh, he married uh, a doctor's daughter. When William Booth died, his father, well, William left an envelope. So you can imagine this kind of, it seems, it's, it's out of the Victorian era, but it's a very Victorian scene. The general dies, he's buried, then all the officers gather round to open this letter. So the letter is opened. He said, I announce that my successor is William Bramwell Booth. Well, it's like a dynasty, isn't it? So, so William Bramwell Booth then becomes the uh, sort of the second general of the Salvation Army. He has got acute deafness. He's got a very weak chest. Really, he hasn't done it. But now, taken over from his father, he's sitting in the office in London, moving people around the country, around the world, left, right, and centre. And, and you can imagine people saying, hang on a minute, who's he to start moving? He's never even done it. There was rebellion in the ranks, even to the point that his own family, his own brothers and sisters, petitioned the committee to get rid of their brother. Harold Begbie, uh, a sycophant, but a very interesting writer on the life of Booth, he reckons that this man was the biggest mover outside of George Scott Railton within the Salvation Army. So here's the son. He's dismissed from, from ruling uh, in that kind of position. Their next child was called Baddington Booth. Baddington was in prison in Manchester for a short time because of his street preaching. He married a vicar's daughter, and then William sent into America with the title Viceroy. Viceroy Ballington Booth. And uh, he was there for a little while, and then William said, I'd like you to go to Southampton. He said, sorry, to South Africa. He said, no, I'm not going. He said, I'm commanding you to leave America and to go to South Africa. He said, Father, I couldn't care what you say, I'm not going. So he left the Salvation Army. The third child was called Catherine Booth, named after the mother. She was uh, chief of staff and uh, was sent out to France and Switzerland. She married a man called Sidney Clibben. Now, what is interesting is this. William Booth and Catherine had four daughters. He stipulated, whoever marries my daughters must keep the name Booth. That's why every one of the four daughters, uh, three of them married, have Booth in their name. And so, you know, we, we read of, you know, uh, Clibbard Boone or Booth Clibbard. You know, it's, it's there in the name. Very interesting. She, uh, she went over to, uh, to America and uh, was involved in Salvation Army work. And then she fell out with her father. And so she left the Salvation Army. So here we are, three children. One is the general. He's dismissed by his brothers and sisters and, and the committee. The next two cannot work with their father. And so they leave the Salvation Army. She and her husband began to be attracted to a man called John Alexander Dowie. 
who was a Scotsman who went to America and, and was heavily involved in the Pentecostal movement, those of you know, know anything about the history of that. By the way, together they had ch- ten children. Emma Booth, number four child, she married George Tucker. So it was George, so it was Emma Booth Tucker. Sadly, she was involved in a train crash. She was the only one killed in the train crash. And you'll find her grave there on the board, buried next to Samuel Logan Brangle. When the memorial service took place, and all the Booth family were there, William said, those who've left the army will not be allowed. And so the two who had left the army were refused entry to the memorial service for the the burial of their sister. Herbert Booth, he was very much involved in in army life and in Holland and Canada and Australasia. He too could not take any more of his father's dictatorial spirit. He said, Father, I love you as my father, but I just can't take any more of this general stuff. So he too left the army. The only child not to serve in the army as a leader was uh, Marion Billups Booth. And uh, sad to say, as a young girl, she had an accident which left her with a disability. So it was only out of kindness she was called Staff Captain. But really, she did nothing. It was just a nice little title for the girl. Evangeline Booth, she had many posts in the army and was the main mover in seeing her brother deposed, William Brownwell Booth, and she became the army's first female general. But she too fell out with her father. The final child was Lucy Booth. She married a Sweden salvationist called Emmanuel Helberg. So she was Emma, or Lucy, Booth, Helberg. All the top posts were given initially to the army children, while they were all in either their late teens or their early 20s. You can suddenly see what started out as a good thing is finishing up the Booth family kingdom. When William Booth died, he died a lonely old man because he alienated just about all of his children. Only Emma and Bramwell stayed close to him. The rest wanted very little to do with him. George Scott Railton wrote in his biography of William Booth, Towards the end, he suffered greatly in his own personal life, and suffering loosens the rigidity of the mind. Those of his own household broke away from him. The dearest of his children died. Trusted officers forsook him. So those whose sins he had forgiven again and again deserted his flag, his flag, and whispered scandals and tittle-tattle into the ears of degraded journalism. He was attacked, vilified, denounced by the vilest of men in the vilest of manners. Sometimes... Sitting alone by himself, blind and powerless, very battle-worn and sad, this old man at the end of his life must have suffered in the solitude of his soul a grief almost intolerable. When he was 19, his minister said to him, William, you're doing all this preaching outside. It would be far better if you preached inside. Why don't you go for ordination? And William said, I don't think I'm well enough for that. So as a 19-year-old, he went to his doctor for medical, saying, my minister wants me to be a minister, but I don't think I'm strong enough. Do you? 
And the minister said, no. So he signed him off as if this man is not up to, uh, to being a minister because his health is very frail. Not long after signing that, the doctor died. Uh, he, he was 60. And here he is, all these years later, still squeaking away and doing his work. Well, he died at the age of 83 in 1912. 150,000 people came to see him lying in state. 40,000 people attended his funeral. And yes, he was buried in Abney Park Cemetery. As you can see, he's a total enigma. When he died, he left behind 16,000 officers in 58 countries preaching in 38 different languages. He was given the freedom of London. So the carriage arrived at his door to take him to the public ceremony to be given the freedom of London. He said, no thank you, I'll walk. So he walked there. That's the kind of man he was. When he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was ugly. One of the great things about looking at church history is that you learn from people, don't you? All of us can probably say we have seen similar accounts of this in other organizations and in other people. And so we say, Lord, thank you that you use people with feet of clay. We live in a broken world. And as Billy Strachan used to say, the church is for rotten people. If it wasn't, we wouldn't be in it. And every one of us is, is broken. And as long as we learn to minister, not out of our baggage, but out of our luggage. The baggage is that which we gather in life because of who we are, our fallenness, our background, our family, things that happen to us. That's our baggage. Our luggage is the gospel that he has given to us. And so I look forward to seeing William Booth in glory. Because you know something? If we had our life analyzed in 50 biographies <laughs> and spoken about for two hours, with me, I don't think you'd even get five minutes. And I say, Lord, thank you for what he has done. And may we just learn lessons, perhaps where he got it wrong, that we may work hard at getting it right. Amen. And you know something? Of such is the kingdom of God. Let's just pray together. Father, we're conscious the only perfect person you've ever worked through is your dear son, the Lord Jesus. And what a wonderful Savior he is. We give you thanks. Christ Jesus came into the world not to save Baptists or Methodists or Roman Catholics or Muslims, or Hindus. He came to save sinners. And we give you thanks. He's the Savior of the world. And Father, we thank you for William Booth. We've had a little laugh at a few places, and 
We thank you for a sense of humor. Lord, we're all quirky people, if truth were known. But I thank you for the people who will be in glory because of his efforts. I want to say thank you for that, Lord. And to be honest, we are envious. We'd love just 1% of that. And so, Father, we thank you for his ministry. And, Lord, we ask and pray his failings may it spare his own to say, Lord, may I just be careful in those areas to realize it's not about me or my kingdom, but it's about our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus. Father, just, if I've been wrong on anything, just blow it away. But what is good and helpful, may you use it for the good of our souls. In the precious name of the lovely Lord Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen.